In fact, on a lot of discussion sites, they won't allow you to discuss about things like that. They'll kick you out if you try and bring it up. Oh, wow. <laughs> This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 2. It is June 23rd, 2007, and this week is the penultimate episode of BOA Audio Season 2. I'm already feeling a little nostalgic as we head towards the finale. We are very, very close to the final episode of Benall of America Audio Season 2. That, of course, will be coming next week. This week, we have an amazing episode for you. Our guest is Lisa Scheel, author of Backyard, Bigfoot, The True Story of Stick Signs, UFOs, and the Sasquatch. She has had a number of amazing personal experiences, both in Texas and Michigan, with a number of strange elements that she attributes to the Bigfoot, including stick signs and horses' manes being braided overnight by mysterious perpetrators. We're going to go in-depth on the stick signs and mane braiding Plus, we're going to be talking about problems with the evolution theory and also issues with the gigantopithecus theory that is very popular in cryptozoology as an explanation for the Bigfoot. Lisa's going to explain why the gigantopithecus theory is not all it's cracked up to be. Additionally, we're going to be talking about cryptozoology's infamous natural versus paranormal Bigfoot debate, UFOs and Bigfoot, Lisa's take on being a woman in cryptozoology, Big picture speculation on what the Bigfoot might be, and much, much more. We are really smashing the fourth wall of cryptozoology here this week on the program. We are going to be delving inside and outside the field with Lisa Scheel, author of Backyard Bigfoot. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Lisa Scheel, let me give you a little background on her. Lisa Scheel is the author of Backyard Bigfoot, the true story of stick signs, UFOs, and the Sasquatch a four-word magazine 2006 Book of the Year finalist. Critics have praised Backyard Bigfoot, saying it is as informative as it is entertaining. It is one of the best types of investigative reporting I've seen, and you may agree or not with her conclusions, but you'll be entertained by the discussions. Lisa was recently elected president of the Upper Peninsula Publishers and Authors Association. As a recognized Bigfoot expert, Lisa has been interviewed by big city newspapers, drive-time talk radio hosts, local and national magazines, and TV reporters. In 2005, she founded the Michigan Upper Peninsula Bigfoot Organization, M-U-P-B-O, to explore all aspects of the Bigfoot phenomenon, from sightings to evolution to UFOs. Lisa has a master's degree in library science, and she currently pens a blog, Bigfoot Quest, as a companion to the M-U-P-B-O site. Her website is www.upbigfoot.com, Pretty simple to spell, U-P-B-I-G-F-O-O-T dot com, upbigfoot.com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview is ultra fresh. It was recorded on June 19th, 2007. Lisa Shield talking about the Backyard Bigfoot, 
on Banal of America Audio Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio Season 2. And this week, our guest is Lisa Scheel. She's the author of Backyard Bigfoot, the true story of stick signs, UFOs, and the Sasquatch, which is just an amazing book. I really enjoyed it a lot. An awesome way of weaving in her own personal research in with uh, some great research into a variety of aspects of the Bigfoot phenomenon that I personally hadn't done my own research into, like Gigantopithecus-type stuff and evolution theory and problems with that when you try and work it into the Bigfoot. So really an education for me, and I appreciated that a lot. And we've got her here on the program to discuss all things Bigfoot and the backyard Bigfoot. Lisa Scheel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start out first with your bio and the background and, you know, where you came from and, and how you gravitated towards uh, the Bigfoot and, and research into the esoteric. Well, I've been interested in weird things for a long time since I saw my first UFO when I was about 14. Um, and in college, I started getting interested in alternative history and starting to doubt the standard story about the way things happened in the world. Um, and then about six years ago, I started really intensely researching Bigfoot and evolution and other related phenomena for a novel that I was writing. And since then, I've been pretty much full tilt into Bigfoot research and also UFOs. For a while, I was the chief investigator for Michigan MUFON. Um, now I'm independent, doing my Bigfoot and UFO research and basically anything weird anybody wants to report to me. <laughs> There you go. There you go. I have here that one of your books, or one of your first books, was a uh, Hunt for Bigfoot, a novel, which was obviously okay. a fiction book. What made you decide to switch from fiction to nonfiction and, and to delve into, uh, you know, like putting out your own research type of stuff instead of uh, telling narratives? Well, first of all, I had done so much research into these topics that I thought I had a lot to say about it. And then I had my personal experiences with Bigfoot that I wanted to share, too, and some things that other Bigfoot books don't deal with, topics that I hadn't read about. Uh, most Bigfoot books, they push the gigantopithecus theory heavily and don't talk much about other theories, and they don't really talk about evolution much, and no other book really talks about stick signs, which are something that I have had a lot of experiences with. So I wanted to share share those experiences and also all my research into these other aspects of the Bigfoot phenomena and things that I consider to be related, like UFOs and other high strangeness and the evolution and human origins and all of that. And kind of throw it all together to try and make a coherent story. Well, let's dive into your personal experience here, your own personal research into into the Bigfoot and, and these, these strange phenomena. Let's start with the big one, as you say, stick signs. Um, Let's hear uh, how your research into the stick sign phenomenon sort of began. Well, it started when I found the first one. But, of course, at first I didn't think it was Bigfoot. I just, in 2003, in November, I noticed this little cross formation, these two sticks that were laid one over the other like a cross, right alongside a trail, not under a tree, not where there were other sticks lying around. It stood out very definitely. And I thought that was strange. But I still kind of dismissed it as a natural thing and went on. And my novel didn't come out until January of 2004, so this was before that came out. Um, and I started finding more of these, and in 2004 I found a whole bunch of stick signs of various kinds, triangles and V-shapes and T's and 
sort of complex ones that mixed the varieties together. And then I found a footprint in 2004, which looked just almost exactly like pictures I had seen of Bigfoot footprints in sandy soil, usually along creek beds. This was not in a creek bed. It was in dry, sandy loam, they call it, in mm-hmm. Texas. It's very powdery soil. And this footprint looked just exactly like the photos I had seen. And I started to think, well, my neighbors wouldn't be doing this. (laughs) 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 And besides, how would they have known to do something like this to try and fool me? Because my book hadn't come out when it first started. And I have dogs, too. At the time, I had six dogs who had free reign over the six acres that I lived on. And so why would people be doing this? Besides, I had mostly elderly neighbors and some families, but not the kind of people who would be creeping around putting sticks in little shapes along trails on my property, hoping I would notice them. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And when I found that footprint, I started thinking, well, this is something Bigfoot might do. But I had not read anything like this. I had, when my research about Bigfoot, I had seen where uh, researchers would find bent-over saplings and things like that that they attributed to Bigfoot, but nothing like what I was finding. So I just kept collecting the photos and documenting it, keeping track of everything that I found, and I finally came to the conclusion that I think this is Bigfoot doing this because I found the tracks and I have heard strange screams and other strange sounds, and I heard something chasing my horse one night. And just a lot of things that kind of come together and led me to the conclusion that it was Bigfoot related. Since uh, since the books come out and your research has come out, have you gotten other people to come forward and say that, that they uh, had discovered that kind of thing? Have it become more pervasive than you thought? Yes, I have. I've uh, been communicating with a man in New York State who says that he's finding these kinds of things. His are a little different. He sent me some photos, and they're definitely unusual things he finds. They're bundles of sticks up in trees, and the only thing I can think of that would do that would be like a flood, but I asked him if there had been any floods in that area, and he said no. So it's strange and intriguing, but not having been to that area, I can't you know, say, oh yes, this is Bigfoot, but yeah. it's definitely intriguing. And I also had a friend here in Michigan in the UP, the Upper Peninsula where I live, um, who thinks that he has found some on his property. And he said he had just never looked for anything like that before, even though he's been interested in Bigfoot, because he had never heard of that sort of thing. But he believes he's found some with them. I've been stick signs, too. I have been finding other people now who are coming forward and telling me about it. Based on all these different stick signs you've seen, have now obviously this is speculative, but have you come to any sort of conclusion maybe about what they might be? Are they communications uh, with you? Are they communications with other Bigfoot? Are they markers? of territory? I mean, have you have you come to any sort of idea maybe of what they might be all about? At first I thought maybe they were trail markers because I would always find them along trails, trails that horses and deer and other animals would frequent. Um, but then I started making my own signs and having them changed overnight. And then I started thinking, well, maybe that's some kind of communication. I don't know what we're saying, but we're <laughs> definitely communicating. I leave my sign and they change it. Well, that's like, I'm saying, I know you're here, and they're saying, yeah, we know we know, you know we're here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what we're saying, but and I've had some people tell me, well, how do you know you're not saying something that's going to make them mad? <laughs> huh. 
But I think if they were going to get mad about it, they would have done it already. When you moved to Michigan, then you began to notice they were happening there, too. So it may not just be like an isolated type of thing to the Bigfoot of the Texas area, right? Right, yeah. And like I said, I've been talking to a guy in New York who has found some stick formations, too. So I think it's pretty widespread and just most people don't notice it or don't recognize it or look for it. Most Bigfoot researchers are looking for other things like footprints and hairs and, you know. Other signs like that that are kind of bigger and more obvious, and they're not really looking around for sticks. And you have to go through the same area every day so that you know what belongs there, what was there the day before, and what wasn't in order to see these things. And then, um, well, let's get this one out of the way right now. What, what do you say to the skeptics and, and, and the debunkers and the really skeptical people that say, you know, well, you're seeing things or you're attaching too much value to these stick signs or, you know, it could have been it could have been a squirrel or, or any of, you know, I'm sure you've heard it all. So uh, what, what do you say to the people that, that uh, you know, think that you're seeing things that aren't there as far as the stick signs go? Well, there are always going to be people like that who... No matter how much evidence you have, they're not going to accept it. Uh, they're debunkers who their sole purpose in life is to harass researchers. <laughs> I don't want to spend a lot of time worrying about those people. I just present the evidence and my investigation of it, explain how I ruled out various things, and it's up to the reader to decide whether they believe it or not. There you go. I like that attitude. Once you kind of established or, or thought you established that, that there was a Bigfoot in the area, what kind of stuff did you do to, I guess, like get more information? I know you got like a hair there and stuff like that. Did you ever like try and stake out the the area? Although I guess you say it was like six acres, so it must have been kind of impossible to stake out six <laughs> six acres. But did you ever like try and, you know, hide out and, and watch the Bigfoot or set a trap or anything crazy like that? No, I mean, I've considered things like that. And I have a game camera that yeah. I put in various places. I now live on 40 acres, so that's oh, a wow. larger area to try and monitor. Uh, I put the game camera in different places, but I don't really expect to get a Bigfoot on a game camera because I think they're just they're too smart for that. Even large animals like cougars and wolves are very wary of things like game cameras. And I get very few pictures of wolves, even though I know they're around here, I've heard them, uh, and I've seen a cougar not 100 feet from my house, but I've never gotten a picture on the game camera of one. So any kind of large animals like that that are used to hiding and staying out of sight, they they don't fall for that when you put a camera on a tree and it's camouflage colored. <laughs> that doesn't really fool them too much. <laughs> if someone were listening to this and they were going to go out and look for these kind of stick signs and stuff like that, what would you recommend they specifically look for? Like you said, you should know the area and know, you know, if you go there tomorrow and then you go there the day after, if things are different the day after, then you know obviously that, that it changed. Um, but what, what kind of signs, no pun intended, should they look for for stick signs? Well, yeah, like you just said, and I said before, you have to know the area. Um, and these generally appear overnight, so if there was nothing there the day before and this appears overnight, you know, you know it's something different and unusual. And you look for something that's in an area where there are no other loose sticks lying around. It's not right under a tree that has lots of sticks falling off it. And they're usually along pathways, like the game trails that deer and other animals go down. Um, and you look for things like parallel sticks, uh, cross sticks, things that really stand out. When you look at them, you can't miss them. Um, geometric shapes, of course, are the best because that's really obvious. 
when you see a triangle sitting there or a square, you know, well, that's, that's not natural. <laughs> and you look, sometimes the stick signs incorporate other things that besides sticks, too. So things like pieces of dead grass and reeds and things that didn't come from the area where you find them. Uh, that's another thing to look for. Yeah, you had a great picture and story in the book uh, with a stick sign that had like a like a feather sticking out of it, which was really right. amazing. I mean, that was that that's the kind of thing that you'd show to a skeptic and be like, "What, you know, dude? How did a how did a dog make this?" <laughs> I know. I've had people say, "Well, maybe bears do it." I've never known a bear to do that. I've seen lots of bears around here. I haven't seen any of them carrying feathers and sticks around. I'm going to make a suggestion here. This is what I would try. Now I know you put a magazine out there. I would put maybe a pencil and a piece of paper, or a pen and a piece of paper, just to see maybe if they would uh, draw something, or, or instead of doing the stick sign, maybe they would like scribble something on the piece of paper. Maybe you never know. I'm going to throw that out there. I think you should try <laughs> that, and this this could be the breakthrough right there. The the, <laughs> the pen and there you go. pen and paper Bigfoot test. Um, now, during this time uh, with the stick signs, and we're going to get to the other exciting stuff with the, with the horses, um, but during this time, did you ever see a Bigfoot? Did you ever see anything that you thought might have been a Bigfoot? I've had glimpses. Um, just last summer, I saw a dark shape in the woods. I had been outside and heard these two ravens squawking, really squawking, flying around in circles above the woods, and there was a clearing back in the woods a little bit. And I could see the sun shining into that clearing, and there was a dark shape standing there. It was taller than a bear or a horse, and then it kind of turned sideways and disappeared behind a tree. Uh, that's the best glimpse I've had so far. Yeah. But I've heard whooping calls, which are very unusual and distinctive, and don't sound like any creature that I'm familiar with. Now, to move on to the amazing stuff here with the horses, this is just amazing. And uh, I checked out your blog, and it sounds like this is probably one of the most popular aspects of the book. That's the main braiding, um, where apparently overnight, you'd go out to your horses the next morning, and overnight, uh, someone or something had braided the hair of your horses. Um, talk a little bit about this, because I'm just completely amazed by it and just stunned and intrigued. Well, I've lived around horses my whole life, and I can tell you, horses don't get their manes tangled into these complicated, twisted braids that I found in their manes. And started about the same time as I started finding stick signs. But again, at first, I didn't think, oh, Bigfoot's doing this. I thought, well, maybe some neighbor kids are coming over and, you know, petting the horses at the fence and doing this. But these are really intricate braids. Uh, I have unraveled a number of them and they are very hard to unravel. Sometimes you can't even unravel them. I have to just cut them out to get them out of the horse's mane. Um, several locks that are twisted individually and then braided together and, and there'll be a little loop and it's all tucked back under so it's, it's hard to describe. You kind of have to see a picture of it. Yeah. And on my blog I put a little link to a little video of me unraveling one because that kind of demonstrates how complicated they are. But gradually I started to wonder about these because I kept finding so many of them. And when horses' manes get tangled, it looks like a tangle. It, it doesn't look graceful or intricate. It just looks like a big tangle in their hair. And these are very different and they appear overnight and the morning that I find these braids, the horses will be very happy and excited like they've been 
having a great time all night. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started reading um, about in other places in the world where people think that Bigfoot braid their horses' manes. In fact, in Russia, um, one young researcher sat in a barn and waited and said that he saw a Bigfoot come in and braid the mane of a horse. So, oh, wow. <laughs> some interesting evidence that this is Bigfoot-related. And it occurs, like, in the same places where I find the stick signs, you know. And Bigfoot seem to be attracted to horses. That's something that's been demonstrated over time. A lot of witnesses have horses. Um, and, in fact, the Patterson film, which is a very famous film footage of a Bigfoot, it was filmed in 1967, and the two men who saw that Bigfoot were on horseback at the time. So it's interesting to wonder if their horses might have attracted the Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah. Now, was the the main breeding, was that going on in Texas, and then when you moved to Michigan, did it keep going on, or was it isolated to one or the other part of uh, the country? No, it's happened in both places, although okay. it's happening a lot more up here. In fact, just the other day, I uh, found the main braid, and that's the one that's in the video of me unraveling, and that was just a few days ago. Now, have you tried putting the game camera in a location that would, uh, like, keep an eye on the horses, or put a video camera there that would watch the horses to see uh, if you could catch anything coming into the to the barn? Oh, yeah. Tried that. <laughs> Get nothing. <laughs> Cameras just don't fool them. You know. It doesn't even fool cougars, so you can't expect a Bigfoot to fall for it and walk right in front of your camera. It's not going to happen, in my opinion. Well, I figured I'd throw it out there, because I, <laughs> I, I if I was in this situation, I'd be trying all, all the same stuff you, you uh, apparently did try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've tried a lot of different things. <laughs> I bet. Um, you say the horses appeared happy or, and excited uh, when you came out there the next day when their manes were braided. You would think it would stand a reason that they would be pretty freaked out by a Bigfoot, but in the book, you kind of suggest that maybe the Bigfoot acclimated themselves to the horses and, and uh, slowly over time then the horses kind of came to accept the Bigfoot as coming around. you think that's how it went down? Well, I think that's probably, and it might be juvenile Bigfoots that do this who would be shorter, more yeah. like human stature. Um, but if they start slowly, I and mean, that's how you get an animal to trust you is you start slowly and you give them time to adjust. You don't walk right up and try and pet them. Uh, so they could have done something like that. And then let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the other exciting stuff you captured on the game camera, because you, uh, you have quite a great chapter in there about the orbs and some really cool pictures there with the orbs and an amazing picture of this flying plate thing that is awesome that I want you to talk about and the red wolves that are supposedly extinct that apparently are on the, that you got a picture of. So talk a little bit about these exciting things that you managed to capture with the game camera. Well, in Texas, where I lived for 15 years, um, there were supposed to be no wolves. They were supposed to be extinct in Texas. And in fact, there aren't supposed to be any red wolves almost anywhere. There's one place, I think it's in Wisconsin, where they released some into the wild. But Texas, there aren't supposed to be any red wolves or cougars. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a cougar once when I was there. I knew a lot of people saw them, but they weren't supposed to be there. And the red wolves, not supposed to be there, but I got a picture of one on the game camera. And I went to um, it was a wildlife park not too far from where I lived, and they had red wolves. And I went there, and I looked at them and compared, take pictures of them and compare it to the picture I had. And in my opinion, they look identical. It's not a coyote. It's a red wolf, which is not supposed to exist in Texas. Yeah. But there it is on the game camera. 
um, and the the orb, that was something really strange. <laughs> I have seen orbs since then myself, but at the time I had not seen any yet. I started getting these weird little balls of light on the game camera. And not all at night either, some in the daytime. In fact, there's one picture in the book of my dogs, and behind the dogs you can see this little orb floating in the air. And I went through the whole thing, are these dust, are these insects, something like that, and came to the conclusion they're, they're not, because I've seen pictures with bugs in them, and you can tell it's an insect. In fact, on the game camera, I have one picture of a spider with a flash lighting it, and it looks pretty strange, but yeah. it's a spider. <laughs> so the, these orbs are clearly different. And I also have pictures of raindrops, and you can see the difference between them and these orbs because the raindrops are a lot more transparent and not as clear as the orbs. And these orbs have very bright rims and kind of mottled center. And I've gotten pictures of them in the dark when the flash did not go off. And yet you can see these orbs clearly must be self-illuminated because the flash did not go off. And there was no other source of light there. It was in the dark. What I thought was really cool is uh, in one of the pictures, the orbs have like a motion, they have like a motion blur, but they're going upwards. So it right. completely uh, sort of takes away the idea that they could be rain or anything like that. Right. I've got pictures where you can see that they've got a motion trail going up and they're coming up out of the ground because they're just above the ground. Oh, wow. And it looks like they're coming up out of the ground. And uh, talk about the flying paper plate picture because that one's just weird and, and really <laughs> cool. And I looked at it probably for like, at least 20 minutes trying to figure out what it could be, and I still have no idea. Right, that's a really strange one. Um, the game camera senses heat and motion in a very small part of the picture, not across the whole photo that you can see, but through a small part of it in the center. So something in that small area had to be giving off heat and moving. Clearly this thing that looks like a paper plate floating in the air was moving, but... It must have been giving off heat, too, because it has to be both for the game camera to be triggered. And you can see a little shadow under the paper plate. So it's clearly an object in the air because it's got a shadow, and it's just hanging there or else moving but not fast enough to have a motion blur. And that was on a night when there was no wind, so it wasn't a Walmart bag floating by. <laughs> <laughs> Unless Walmart bags have become self-propelled. So this is a very strange thing. It looks, for the life of me, it looks like a paper plate flying through the air. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great picture, and that's in the book, so uh, that's definitely worth checking out. Um, now, like we've talked here about all this, all this great personal research you've done. As an author, talk about using that first person in the story. That's kind of a big risk because you put yourself out there big time for the opinions of every clown <laughs> <laughs> who wants to share their opinion, and the next thing you know, you know, you you put yourself out there as the main target in the book, kind of. I mean, that's a big risk. I, I really respect that. Well, it was only natural because of the experiences I've had, and that's what I wanted to talk about. So it became a personal story because of that. And when I decided I wanted to talk about the six signs and the other weird things that have happened to me, the main braiding and the, the flying orbs and all that stuff, I had to talk about it in the first person because it all happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something that's pretty unusual in Bigfoot books. You don't find many that talk in the first person unless it's uh, a witness who's written a book about their ongoing encounters with Bigfoot. But there aren't even that many of those. Most Bigfoot books are 
basically collections of sightings and yeah. a researcher who's writing in a very detached tone, talking about the witnesses and what they saw. So I wanted to do something different, first of all, and I wanted to present the things that happened to me, so it had to become personal. And I don't really care if people call me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Just read some of the comments on my blog. <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. Well, we've talked about here on the show uh, in ufology, when a witness comes forward, a lot of times they're kind of put through the ringer or or uh, shunned or kind of kept on the outside of the field, if you will. So have you experienced anything sort of like that where, you know, you're kind of on the fringe of the cryptozoology scene because you have the experiences and, you, they, you know, maybe they don't think you're – uh, unbiased or you're not detached enough from the from the scene in a way. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, well, and I've sort of purposely kept myself separate and independent because I just don't want to get involved in all that bickering. <laughs> and there's an awful <laughs> lot of that in cryptozoology, especially Bigfoot research, a lot of bickering because there are two camps. One says it's a giant ape, nothing else, and another that wants to talk about paranormal aspects of it, UFOs and other strange things. So there's a lot of vehement debate between those groups. And I decided early on I didn't want to get involved in that. I want to talk about, you know, UFOs and all the strange things. But I don't want to try and be a part of that whole community. I mean, I communicate with other Bigfoot researchers, some who agree with me, some who don't. But I don't make a big effort to try and be in their club yeah. <laughs> this is not important to me. I do my thing and I talk to the witnesses who come to me. And you know, that's what I like to do is the research, not so much the networking. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that, that uh, divide in, in cryptozoology in a little bit. Um, we're kind of going to dive in now to uh, the, the straight research aspects of the book and, and leave the personal parts behind a little bit. So let's first talk about the evolution theory and, and the problems that you found with it. Um, because it seems like the way you broke it down in the book, uh, they really don't know what's going on. And it sounds like every time they dig up a skeleton, you know, they want to add it to just a big mess of, of confusion, which seems to have overtaken, uh, you know, them trying to put together a linear line of skeletons from the first human to the last. It sounds like they, they just keep messing it up in a way. So uh, talk a little bit about the evolution theory and that kind of stuff. Right. Well, nobody wants to be the latest person to discover another Homo erectus skeleton. You know, they all want to have their own new species that they found. So it becomes this big jumble of, well, I found some new bones, so I'm going to call this, you know, a species named after me or named after where I found it. I'm going to have discovered a new species. So that's kind of what drives this whole mess of hominid species. It has become a real jumble, very hard to decipher, and that's because... They don't really know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they find some bits of bone scattered over a big area. They bring them together and try and remake what the what the creature looked like, but it's all bits and pieces that have been crushed and scattered, and they find them laying out on the ground. I mean, most people have this picture of anthropologists out there digging in the dirt, kind of like archaeologists digging way down and finding things and finding a skeleton laying there. But that's not really how it happens most of the time. They find things laying on top of the ground, scattered and crushed, and many thousands of little pieces, and then they have to piece them together. So when you see a picture of a reconstructed 
skeleton of a hominid, especially when you see like a skull, you'll often see dark material in between pieces of white, and that's because dark material is the missing bone. So all that you have is these fragments of bone that they've pieced back together the way they think it looks. And so the whole theory of evolution is based on, well, the theory of human evolution is based on these fragmentary remains that they have found. And also then the DNA evidence, which is another issue altogether. Yeah. <laughs> another confusing mess because they've done DNA studies looking at modern human DNA to try and backtrack to figure out where humans came from. And depending on which study you believe or which study you're reading at the moment, you come to a different conclusion about where humans came from. The one you hear about most of the time is the African Eve theory, where they claim that they could tell by looking at DNA of modern women that the first modern human woman came from Africa. But they only studied 147 women. And of their African women, only two had actually been born on the African continent. So they were using this small group to try and tell us where billions of people came from. And other scientists who still subscribe to the theory of evolution admit that, well, it depends how you put that information into your computer program and how many times you run the software. It'll turn out different um, locations, different dates for where modern humans came from. Because what they do is they get the DNA, they do their analysis, they plug that in the computer, and then the software spits out the information for them. And it all depends on how many times you run it and how you interpret what it tells you, and there are thousands of interpretations. Yeah. So it's not this cut and dried, humans came from Africa 200,000 years ago. It depends on how you look at it. Exactly, and you kind of make a point in the book that uh, there seems to be kind of almost a desperation to make it work. You know, they'll get the slightest glimmer of hope, and then they'll, you know, they'll slam slam the crap out of it in National Geographic or something, just just because they want people to to buy into this really bad. It seems like there's a real desperation to get people to jump on board and, and buy into this. Right, they they are desperate to defend the theory of evolution, and recently we've had the thing about the presidential debate where the Republicans were asked if they believe in evolution, and the ones who raised their hands say they didn't believe in it have been just smashed in the media because of that. And so the, the people who, the scientists who are the main ones who believe in evolution, because polls have shown that a majority of people in this country don't believe in evolution. So the people who are trying to defend evolution like to talk, if the only opposition is from creationists. But, I mean, there are Christians who don't subscribe to the strict view of creationism. There are people who um, are Christians but believe in evolution. So they're not all creationists. There are different kinds of Christians, but they presented as if all Christians are against evolution and believe that the earth was created 6,000 years ago. But that's just not the case. And there are people who don't believe in evolution who aren't even Christians. You know? And there are other ways to look at it, but they... Just try and make it like you're a religious zealot if you don't believe in evolution, because that's an easy way for them to dismiss it. Yeah, you can definitely see the, how they frame it uh, that way and, and really shortchange a lot of people who are trying to get a different point of view across. Now, based on what you've researched into this, this evolution theory and the various, uh, art, I guess, uh, I wouldn't call them artifacts, bones and stuff that they found, 
Um, where do you think the hairy hominid, as you call it, the Bigfoot, where do you think he fits into the whole equation? Does he exist alongside the humans and come along with us all along, or is it something that sort of sprouted off from humans or, or humans sprouted off from him, or do you have an opinion on sort of like where the hairy hominid fits into the history of the human uh, species? Well, I think they are the descendants of the ancient hominids, Homo erectus and all those, um, and that we are not. We were created, but not by evolution. In fact, I'm not convinced that any creatures have evolved because there's just so much evidence of weird things happening, like Lazarus species that will disappear, be gone for millions of years, and then pop back up. How does that happen if it's evolving? <laughs> yeah. That just doesn't make much sense. <laughs> uh, so I think the, the Bigfoot, which in my book I call them Harry hominids when I'm talking, I'm my blog or talking to people. I usually call them Bigfoot because people get confused if I call them very hominids and I don't explain what I mean by that. But I think they are descended from those hominids and the people are not. But we may be related in some way. Like whoever created us may have mixed in a little of their DNA to make us look kind of like them. But we're not like their brothers that close, you know, maybe like a distant cousin. Yeah, because you make a great point in the book about how ill-equipped the human body is for life on Earth, and uh, it sort of flies in the face of evolution, because uh, you'd think that uh, with the way people are now, would never have made it past, you know, uh, when they first kind of came about. Right. I mean, we need clothes and houses and things like that in order to survive the elements. But we're supposed to believe that we evolved to be hairless in order to survive the heat, but so then why do people who live in cold climates still have no hair? We should be hairier, but we're not. Yeah. It just doesn't fit. Now let's talk about the Gigantopithecus theory because you completely demolish it in the book. And I was psyched to read this because I kind of had taken the Gigantopithecus theory at face value when I'd heard it from a lot of the cryptozoologists and people who are in, into cryptozoology who, who really hang their hat on the, on the Gigantopithecus theory. You know, I, I kind of took it at face value. I was like, all right, they must be, that, that probably has some merit to it. But then when I read the book here, when I read Backyard Bigfoot, I was amazed at how flimsy the, the Gigantopithecus theory was. I, I'm just stunned by it. I don't know who to believe anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, talk a little bit about the Gigantopithecus theory and why it's really not all it's cracked up to be. Well, when you watch documentaries like on Discovery Channel, you likely to hear about Gigantopithecus, but they don't really tell you much. They show you a statue of this giant ape-looking creature that's standing upright, and they say, well, this is the most likely place the Bigfoot came from. It's a remnant of this species. And it gives you the impression that they've got whole skeletons of Gigantopithecus. But all we have is three complete jawbones, one fragmented jawbone, and about a thousand teeth. And that's it. We don't have any other bones from them. So they're basing this whole theory on four jawbones and a bunch of teeth. And that's all. And from that, they're inferring that it was giant, and it probably was, because if you look at a picture of a gigantopithecus jaw next to a human jaw, it's, it's huge. So it was undoubtedly a large creature, but we don't know exactly what it looked like. You know, did it resemble what people describe Bigfoot as looking like? Or did it look like a gorilla? Did it look like an orangutan? There's one reconstruction of it that looks like an orangutan. There are several others that look like gorillas. So it depends on 
whose reconstruction you look at. And it's all based on four jaw bones and some teeth. And nobody even knows if they walked upright. It's all assuming that they walked upright. But the one anthropologist who had studied Gigantopithecus the most and who discovered some of these jaws, he believes they were knuckle walkers, which means that they preferred to walk on all fours. And they say knuckle walking because they would have their hands kind of fisted and be walking on that part of their hands. Um, so the evidence suggests that they were knuckle walkers and not bipeds, which in order to be Bigfoot, they would have to be bipedal, walking on two feet. But that just doesn't seem to be the case. And like I say, nobody knows what they look really looked like. So it's all a bunch of conjecture based on four jaw bones and some teeth. Yeah, but they never tell you that. Those those tricky people who are pushing the gigantopithecus theory, uh, I feel so I feel so used. <laughs> <laughs> well, they want to to believe that because it makes Bigfoot a giant ape, yeah. and that's it. Mm-hmm. it. It seems logical, it seems reasonable, and so they want to say that that's what it is. But the evidence just isn't there. We don't know enough about gigantopithecus to even know what they looked like. And then I wanted to isolate here a quote from your book that just completely blew me away and resonated tremendously with me, and here here it goes. No matter how deeply we bow to the mainstream scientists, they will never accept hairy hominid research as legitimate or valuable. I found that just to be such a prescient uh, statement, and especially in light of, uh, it seems like cryptozoology, their attitude right now seems to be, you know, if, hey, we play it cool, if we act normal, any minute now they're going to let us in. And it right. seems like you're kind of trying to tell them, listen, you know, it ain't happening. <laughs> no matter how <laughs> normal we pretend we're going to be and no matter how normal we try and make the study of Bigfoot, um, they're not going to let us in. So uh, I don't know, extrapolate on that quote that you had in the book because it was just an amazing uh, observation of what's going on here in the esoteric. Well, I think cryptozoologists are driving themselves crazy trying to get accepted by science. And a few scientists have gotten involved in it, but that doesn't lead to scientific acceptance. It's just not going to happen. Even if Bigfoot's just a giant ape, that would throw a big monkey wrench in their whole ideas about the world. I mean, there aren't supposed to be bipedal apes walking around any more than there are supposed to be big hairy guys walking around. Yeah. So I just see it as a futile exercise. You can bang on the door as long as you want, but they're not going to let us in. So I just, I don't even worry about that. I think people drive themselves crazy trying to get acceptance, and it's just pointless. Just do your research, learn what you want to learn, and, you know, have fun with it. and Don't worry about science, because they're not going to accept it. Now, do you think anything will get us into the door of mainstream science, or is it, you know, we're on the fringe here and we should just accept it and, and, and uh, you know, work to prove what we got going on? Um, no, I don't think they'll ever accept it personally. I mean, the only evidence that would be conclusive that Bigfoot exists is if you had a live Bigfoot or a dead body of one. And I don't think that's ever going to happen. Even if it did, I think scientists would look at it and say, oh, that's fake, and just turn their backs on it. They're very good at just you know, ignoring the evidence. Let's talk about the UFO connection to the Bigfoot, because you do talk a lot about that in the book, and uh, it's a subject that a lot of people in cryptozoology do not want to touch at all. So uh, first, talk about some of the evidence as far as a UFO connection to Bigfoot goes. Right. Well, there are 
stories going back thousands of years about fairy creatures, and there are stories going back thousands of years about UFOs. Um, and there are some sightings that talk about this. Um, especially in 1974, there was one where a man saw a Bigfoot inside a UFO. Oh, wow. That happened in Wisconsin. Uh, he saw a disc-shaped UFO and had kind of a windshield on it, and behind that he could see a hairy creature, a Bigfoot. Uh, and there are other ones where people see them in the same areas where they see UFOs, sometimes together, sometimes separately, but in the same area. Uh, just had one reported to me where in 1988, two brothers saw a Bigfoot on a lot, saw three Bigfoots actually, on a logging road. And it happens to be the same road where people see a mystery light. So, I mean, that's not conclusive, but it's very interesting. And I mean, there are legends going back a long time, too. In France, they have stories about hairy dwarves. They call them farfadet. And they say they sleep in caves in the daytime and come out at night. And then they also have some sightings there of those. In the 1850s, some women saw them pulling a chariot up a hill, and then the chariot flew off into the sky and disappeared. Oh, wow. So, and, of course, there was a wave of UFO and Bigfoot sightings in the 70s in Pennsylvania. Uh, so there's a lot of... You know, people would, a lot of people say, well, that doesn't prove anything. You know, it's just circumstantial, but all the evidence for Bigfoot is circumstantial, so yeah. <laughs> everything we're going on is circumstantial. Exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting evidence suggesting a connection between Bigfoot and UFOs. And then uh, you sort of touched on this earlier, but let's kind of talk a little bit more about it. And that's that divide within cryptozoology. It's it's tremendous. It's like the Grand Canyon of cryptozoology. Natural ape-like being versus potential paranormal connection. How pervasive is that divide? It's, it seems huge to me. You're in the field kind of, so you know better than I would. I've heard stories of uh, people refusing to speak at conferences if, if there's going to be a paranormal Bigfoot lecture and, and stuff like that. And, and have, you, have you seen that kind of backlash to your work or just in general to the UFO paranormal connection? Right, yeah. I've seen it mostly on discussion sites and blogs and things like that where somebody brings up um, UFOs or some other high strangeness, a lot of other people will just jump on them and tell them, oh, that's ridiculous, you shouldn't do that. We should just throw out that information. And that's a refrain I hear a lot from those kind of people is that, well, if you get a report of a Bigfoot that involves something strange, you should just throw that out because we don't want to know about that. We should just throw it out and ignore it. Just Bigfoot's just a giant ape. So we should prove Bigfoot's real, then we can start thinking about whether they're related to UFOs or other strange things. So, so we should just throw all that out and ignore it. Um, and there's a lot of name-calling and pretty vicious attacks when people will just rip into somebody if they suggest something paranormal. And in fact, on a lot of discussion sites, they won't allow you to discuss about things like that. They'll kick you out if you try and bring it up. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they, and some of them say straight out, don't sign up for this email discussion list if you think Bigfoot's connected to UFOs because we don't want you here. Oh. I've seen I've seen research sites where they collect sightings that say, well, if you have seen Bigfoot and a UFO, don't tell us about it. We don't want to know about it. Don't waste our time. Oh, man. And these are people who claim to be researchers and want to collect sightings, but only the sightings that they want to know about, apparently. If you were to break it down, uh, you know, obviously it's impossible really to do, but if you were to break it down percentage-wise, would you say the majority 
is sort of that anti-UFO aspect, or would you say that that's sort of like the the old school folks that are still clinging to to uh, you know old school cryptozoology? Well, it's really hard to measure that, yeah. especially on discussion sites on the internet, because a lot of the people post their comments anonymously. They don't give their names, so you don't know this could be the same 12-year-old boy posting <laughs> under 20 different usernames. <laughs> you just can't tell. <laughs> so it's really hard to quantify that, but a lot of the well-known Bigfoot groups um, are the ones that don't want to talk about that sort of thing. So you get the impression that it's the majority of researchers, but it's really hard to tell whether it is or not. So I've met plenty of people who do research who are interested in all of that. And even if they're not sure that Bigfoot's connected to UFOs, they still investigate those kind of sightings. I think I've gotten some emails from that 12-year-old boy, too. He's a nasty <laughs> little bastard. Um, <laughs> and he gets you, around. <laughs> he does get around. He's oh, He's cruel. Do you feel like the tide is sort of turning back towards uh, some acceptance of this UFO paranormal aspect of the Bigfoot? Because I, I kind of can see it. When I first got into this, it didn't seem, that seemed sort of like really way off bounds. But maybe as I've gotten deeper into cryptozoology, I've noticed that uh, that's a growing uh, area of cryptozoology. It feels like it's growing. Do you feel like it's growing, or do you think that it's sort of just the same as it's always been? Well, since I haven't been involved in this field for decades, I don't know that I can really say that. But I think the Internet is helping giving people a voice. You know, they don't have to go through one of these groups. They can start their own website and they can get their opinions out there. So I think that um, allows it to be more visible. But the big Bigfoot groups are still shying away from it and not wanting to talk about it. And can anything be done to, to bridge this, this divide? I, that seems to be a refrain I use a lot here on the show, not just with cryptozoology, but it seems like every area of esoterica is completely uh, split into its own subsections and inner feuds. Is there anything that can be done to bridge these two groups, or is the divide so huge that, that you know, they're going to end up going their own separate ways? Well, it's up to the people who are part of keeping that divide there. They have to want to bridge the gap, and I don't really see that happening anytime soon, because most of the people who are into the bickering and infighting, they don't want to give it up. That's, that's, they kind of like it, <laughs> like it that way, like having um, discord. Really? You know, some people are just like that. <laughs> I guess so, yeah, that's strange. It's strange, but it seems to be just a part of the way some people think they prefer drama, I guess you could say. Now, one of the things we talk about sometimes here when, when we have a, a female guest on the show is being a woman in the esoteric world, and you're the first female cryptozoologist that I've ever had on the show. I'm sure there's others out there, but I'm not too familiar uh, with cryptozoology and, and, the, and the players in the field, but what's it like being a woman in the world of cryptozoology, and, and how do you feel uh, that you fit into this, this crazy world here that is at times kind of like an old boys network? Well, yeah, it is a lot like an old boys' network, especially for the researchers who are publicly visible. They're virtually all men. Uh, there was one woman, Autumn Williams, who had a TV show for a while. But other than that, it's men. <laughs> and I've talked about that a lot on my blog about sexism and Bigfoot research. And, of course, had nasty comments calling all sorts of names. <laughs> But uh, after I talked about it on my blog, it even got picked up by Lauren Coleman on his blog talking about it. So... And I got a lot of positive emails from p 
people saying, yeah, I've experienced this too. I know it exists from men and women. I've gotten emails. So that's gratifying. I think we need to talk about it. Some people, women even say, well, I've never seen that, so it doesn't happen, so we shouldn't talk about it, <laughs> which is totally ridiculous. <laughs> well, what do you... <laughs> because it's never happened to you. We shouldn't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of, like, sexism have you run into where they're like, well, you're a woman, you can't, you wouldn't know anything about Bigfoot, or I, that sounds so crazy. I had one guy who told me that, well, women don't want to get into Bigfoot research because they're afraid to go in the woods. <laughs> it's totally ridiculous. That kind of thing it gives me a good laugh, <laughs> but it's, it's just ridiculous. But it's, a lot of it is very subtle. This kind of old boys' club attitude, where you know, there's a big tough men there in their camouflage outfits in the woods, you know, tromping around, and that's who you see on TV all the time. And some of that is the TV producers. They're prejudices about it. That, well, this has to be big, tough guys in the woods, and that's what you see. But even when you look at the Bigfoot website, you don't find very many women there. There's one group I can think of that is run by a woman, um, but most of them you look at and it's all men you can see. Even if they have women in their group who are researchers, you don't see them on the website. You can't tell if there are women involved. And you can't help but wonder, well, why is that? Why don't they let on that there are women in their group? Now, in the grand scheme of things, have you come to any sort of conclusion on what you think Bigfoot might be? I mean, it's a kind of a big, broad, general question, but at the same time, you know, uh, let's, let's dig into it. Well, like I said, I think they are the descendants of the ancient hominids and not us. And that they are not just giant apes. They're not dumb. They're very smart and sophisticated. I've found evidence that they use stone tools. Um, so that's another sophisticated thing you wouldn't think of some big, hairy ape creature using tools. Um, and they do things that aren't ape-like, like swimming. So to me, the evidence says they are not apes. They are primates, but there's a difference because <laughs> humans are primates too. So they're, I think they're descended from the hominids. They're very intelligent, very sophisticated. For all we know, they have language. <laughs> I mean, how do we know? We only see them on occasion. And I think they are connected to UFOs and other strangeness. I don't know if they are the, the beings behind the UFOs or if they work for them, but there's, in my mind, definitely a connection there. And they are paranormal, even if you think they're just a giant ape. <laughs> That's one thing I have talked a lot about on my blog because it annoys me so much. People don't know what the word means and they say, oh, paranormal, that's, that's UFOs, that's all that weird stuff. So Bigfoot's not paranormal. But, in fact, it is because paranormal just means it's something that science can't explain, which at this point Bigfoot is. How do you reconcile uh, the, like, the paranormal elements with the Bigfoot? Have you speculated at all on uh, just sort of how those could be related? Because I'm trying to like wrap my head around. I can see the Bigfoot as a creature that has existed here for a long time, and, and you know, it's it's uh, it's not necessarily an ape, but it's kind of a primate, and and but I'm still trying to wrap my head around how it could be related to the UFO enigma. And at the same time, I've heard the stories of, you know, someone will see a Bigfoot and then it'll just vanish and tracks that disappear in the middle of nowhere. Maybe it's an interdimensional being kind of thing. Have you thought about uh, that aspect of the Bigfoot? Right. Yeah. Well, I tend to think that the UFOs drop them off and pick them up. And that's why they'll be there for a while and then they won't be. And I also 
think that's why they're connected to these species that are supposed to be extinct, but are here again, like the red wolves and the cougars and those kind of things. And I think that there's somebody out there doing some genetic experiments and playing around with DNA and making creatures and reforming them after a while, like I talked about the Lazarus species and that kind of thing. So yeah. I think they're kind of like the UFOs, whoever is behind them is kind of like the zookeepers, and Earth is their big zoo, That's which I know is kind of a far-out idea of a lot of people. Their eyes glaze over when you say something like that. Oh, no. That's well, hard to explain in a nutshell. No, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. very complicated. It's interesting. It, it, uh, it makes a lot of sense. And you think the uh, the people who are who are tinkering with the Bigfoot, if you will, uh, that's probably someone off Earth or, or someone we don't know really necessarily who. It's not the government or rogue scientists or anything like that. No, I don't think UFOs are government experiments. <laughs> and I wrote a long piece on my blog about that recently. But you know, I... My dad was in the Air Force, so I grew up on Air Force bases and around the military. And I've talked about this with him, too, and he doesn't really, isn't convinced that UFOs are really here, but he says if they are, they're not government experiments, because if the government had a secret aircraft that they didn't want anyone to know about, they would not be flying it around big cities like flying it over Phoenix. Yeah. And, in fact, he worked on the B-2 stealth bomber, which was a very secret um, project back in the 80s. And they didn't fly it, test fly it over big cities. They had a big corridor of restricted airspace that goes from Southern California up into Nevada. So they didn't need to go out in other places to test their secret aircraft. They have these restricted airspaces where they can do it. And there's restricted airspace all over the country. And other countries have similar things. So... You don't need to be testing secret aircraft where a bunch of people are going to see it. Another big picture sort of question, I guess, and, and uh, you can speak to this. Can the Bigfoot be captured? Is it possible, uh, aside from, you know, an accidental type thing where you hit it with a truck? No, I don't think anyone's going to capture them. First of all, they're big. The, the sighting cells, they're strong. They're smart. Uh, I don't think you're going to catch one. I heard of, of one thing where somebody was going to use a, a net and try and capture one, and that just seems ridiculous to me. You can catch this eight-foot-tall, very muscular, very strong creature in a net, and it's just going to let you do it. If you wanted to tranquilize it, you'd have to know how much it weighs, you know, what its metabolism is like. I mean, they they have enough trouble tranquilizing rhinoceroses and other animals like that that we know exist and can go look at. Yeah. They have trouble tranquilizing them, and it's, People think they're going to tranquilize a Bigfoot, which we know virtually nothing about. So I don't think that's going to happen. All right. Okay. So we can cross that off the list here. <laughs> Since you don't think that they can capture, let's say you hit one with a truck or something, right? Let's let's say Bigfoot's proven to be real. Good or bad for cryptozoology in the long run? Mm, well, that's tough. <laughs> it depends on what they turn out to be. Because if they turn out to be a giant ape, well, that would be fine for cryptozoology because that's what most cryptozoologists think Bigfoot is. Turns out there's something more human, more they're a hominid, then that would be kind of bad for cryptozoology <laughs> because they've been telling us that they're gigantopithecus for a long time. Now, of course, it would be bad for mainstream science either way. What I've uh, kind of thought for a while, too, is that if the Bigfoot were proven to be real, uh, 
that would kind of be a real blow for cryptozoology in the long run because the Bigfoot's kind of the tentpole of the whole operation. If you lose Bigfoot, there's not too many poster childs, if you will, poster boys for cryptozoology after you lose the Bigfoot. Right, you kind of be left with the Loch Ness Monster and yeah. Champ and <laughs> those things, yeah. It, it is the, the, the big one, the, I guess you could say the holy grail of cryptozoology is proving Bigfoot's real. So if they did that, they would be, they'd probably be depressed for a while. I think that the mainstream would take the Bigfoot from us, and, you know, then they'd be like, okay, you were right about that. But then cryptozoology would be back to being marginalized and, and would have nothing to, to really prop it up as far as what the next big thing. There's no next big thing once you capture the Bigfoot. That's it. You're, you're out of luck. Right. After they proved it was real, I'm sure scientists would still lock out the cryptozoologists. Exactly. They would not, still want, not want to let them in, not want to share their space with us. It goes back to what you said earlier about uh, the mainstream science. They don't want the esoteric there. We're getting scared of it. They, they, scientists have degrees. <laughs> and a lot of cryptozoologists don't, especially Bigfoot researchers, don't have degrees in anthropology or biology. So scientists don't like to let in laymen. Well, I've also noticed that there's a there's that divide, too, within cryptozoology, where uh, they don't want mainstream scientists getting involved in some ways. And I've seen, I've heard, you know, uh, various cryptozoologists on other radio shows where they rail on on scientists who, who want to get involved in, in that kind of thing. Do you, do you notice that as well, that there's a anti-science bent in cryptozoology because they kind of can see the writing on the wall that if the scientist gets involved and helps and they prove Bigfoot's real, then they're kind of shit out of luck? Well, I think there's two camps of that, too. There are the, the people who don't like scientists and don't want scientists involved at all, but there's more people, I think, who want scientists involved and they really spend all their time trying to attract scientists, giving the impression that only scientists are qualified to, you know, investigate these things. And so there's kind of two sides to it. And then there's those of us who are in the middle. We need more people in the middle, I think. Heading here towards the end, let's talk about your group here, the Michigan Upper Peninsula Bigfoot Organization. What is the MUPBO and, and what do you guys do? Well, I usually call it Mupbo. <laughs> it's easier to say. Okay. That was a group I started a couple of years ago um, because I wanted to kind of have a way to get people together and, you know, collect sightings and have a, an organization of my own because I like to be independent. Um, and I've gotten some members, and we had a meeting this last month and we had a lot of fun. So that's the main thing is just to give people a place where they can report sightings and uh, people a place where they can come together and talk about Bigfoot. And like at our meeting, we had people who didn't believe in Bigfoot and people who did. So, But we still, you know, had a nice discussion and a lot of fun. So that's the main reason is kind of camaraderie and also research. Why did the people who didn't believe in Bigfoot even come to the meeting? Because <laughs> their mother brought them. <laughs> <laughs> A friend of mine brought her two grown sons with her. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> All right, one mystery solved here. Well, what's next for you? Uh, anything coming up that we should know about, another book maybe, or speaking engagements or anything like that you want to plug? Well, I've got a number of books in the works. 
The biggest one is I'm co-writing a book with Linda Godfrey, who wrote Weird Michigan and a bunch of other books, Beast of Bray Road. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing the sequel to Weird Michigan. It's going to be called Strange Michigan. Um, so I'm going to be doing a big research road trip through Michigan, awesome. <laughs> working on that, um, and looking for stories people want to tell us their weird stories about Michigan, you know. It's about all kinds of weird things in Michigan, from ghost stories to Bigfoot to unconventional people and ancient mysteries, anything like that. So if anybody wants to tell us their stories, then go to upbigfoot.com or weirdmichigan.com and contact one of us. And that book will be out in the fall of 2008. Awesome. Not too far away. And I'm also working on a Backyard Bigfoot Field Guide, which will kind of instruct people in how to look for signs of Bigfoot. And I've got a couple more sequels to Backyard Bigfoot I'm working on. (laughs) I was going to do one big sequel with everything in it like I did with Backyard Bigfoot where I had evolution and everything in there. But now I've decided to do some several smaller books, each one focusing on one aspect of it. So I can look for those two coming up. Awesome. That sounds great. I look forward to uh, to these new books coming out. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I have a tremendous amount of respect for your independent spirit. I really appreciate that. And we need more people, like you said, in the middle of uh, in the middle of this crazy debate that goes on in, in all these fields. And I also like how you're, you're not specialized into one field. You know, you're you're willing to look at the UFO part. You're looking at the Bigfoot part. You're taking a look at orbs and all that other great stuff. So I appreciate that non-specialization, because we need more of that in the world of the esoteric. And like I said, the book was really cool. I appreciated the personal aspect of your research mixed in with the mainstream sort of research and the hardcore research. It was a very nice weaving of the two. The book is Backyard Bigfoot, The True Story of Stick Signs, UFOs, and the Sasquatch. Where can people get the book? Uh, you can get it from Amazon.com and other booksellers, and you can get it from the publisher at SlipDownMountain.com. Awesome. And people, of course, can find out more information on you at UpBigfoot.com. Lisa Shield, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio, Season 2. Big, big thanks to Lisa Shield for coming on the show. Of course, you can find out more information on Lisa Scheel and her work at www.upbigfoot.com, U-P-B-I-G-F-O-O-T.com, upbigfoot.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for Been All of America Audio listener feedback. And this week's letter comes from Mike, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Tim. I love the audio archives. I have downloaded and listened to almost all of them. Regarding another listener's critique of you saying, yeah, throughout the interviews, I disagree with his assessment. I think the yeah is a positive response that is non-committal and serves as a sort of lubricant to keep the interview flowing freely and is appropriate. The interviewee, after all, is speaking non-stop about his or her passions, and an occasional yeah keeps the information flowing freely. They are alone on the other end of a phone line and need a response on occasion. Also, when are you going to get James Gilliland on your show? He has much to say regarding the multi- and interdimensional aspects of the UFO phenomenon. Apparently some ET races are so advanced that their interface between consciousness and technology is seamless. All the best. Thank you sincerely for your work. Mike, No Hometown Listed. Thank you very much, Mike, for the kudos. I really appreciate them. 
I'm glad you've enjoyed the audio archives. Dig in and check out all the great episodes we have to offer here on BOA Audio. Regarding the yeah. Now, I recall that we discussed this a few episodes back during Lister Feedback, and I think my answer was a lot like yours, Mike. I use the yeah as, just like you said, a lubricant to keep the interview flowing freely. I'd rather say yeah and let the guest keep going than interrupt with some completely off-topic point or side tangent that may completely derail what is a great answer from the guest. One of the big drawing points of BOA Audio is we let the guests talk. That is a conscious choice on my part, not to interrupt the guests and to let them keep going as long as they want to go with an answer. That way we get a ton of great details, as many of you listeners have probably noticed by now. I have removed some of the yeahs from the interviews because of people like that guy that wrote in that didn't like the yeah, but I leave some in here and there on occasion, so hopefully people who enjoy the yeah can get their fill of yeahs in the episodes. I will note that in next week's season finale, I left a lot of stuff in the episode that normally may have been left on the cutting room floor during the editing process, so you're going to get a little more raw edition of BOA Audio next week. Regarding James Gilliland, I will put him on the list for Season 3. Bear in mind, folks, you never know who can and can't show up on the show. We Sometimes people just don't get back to you. Sometimes you chase them down. Some guests we've had on the show, literally I chased down for months to get them on the program. So you never know how hard it's going to be to get different people on the show. But keep sending in the guest suggestions. James Gilliland, on the list. Thank you very much, Mike, for writing in. I really appreciate your kudos and support on the yeah issue (laughs) and of course the guest suggestion so thank you so much for writing in if you would like to be a part of banal of america audio listener feedback i've got some bad news for you there will be no more banal of america audio listener feedback because next week is the season finale and i'll be doing a little bit of my own listener feedback talking back to you reflecting a little bit about the finale of banal of america audio season two a look into the future of Banal of America Audio, and all sorts of season finale hijinks. So, there is no more Banal of America Audio listener feedback, but of course I always want to hear from you, the listeners. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to hear your guest suggestions. I want to hear your comments. I want to hear your critiques. I don't care if they're good or bad. I want to hear from the great listeners of this program. I read every single email I get. So don't stop writing in because we're not producing more episodes over the summer. Keep writing in. We're going to need those letters when BOA Audio returns in the fall. There's many ways to contact me, but here are the best two. Either go to banalofamerica.com, click the contact button on the bottom of the left-hand side menu. That'll take you to the contact section of the website. That'll put you in touch with me. Or simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either one of those methods puts your correspondence into my hands, and into the inbox at BOAHQ. Up next, the thanks. Let's rock and roll here with the thanks. Leslie, Chiron, Arlie, Joe V, and Tina Senna. The top-notch, BanalofAmerica.com staff. These guys are awesome. I've put them over week after week here on the program because I hugely appreciate their help and support with the audio series and the website. I've been saying it for a while, folks, but I'm going to say it again. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at PinallofAmerica.com, you're only getting half the story. So huge thanks to Leslie, Chiron, Arlie, Joe V, and Tina Senna.
thenallofamerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. A radio show like this costs money. Phone calls cost money. Bandwidth costs money. Time to produce them costs money, surprisingly. These costs are paid for by yours truly, with help from great BOA Audio listeners. How can you help? You click the PayPal button at banallofamerica.com and make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards helping keep BOA Audio and banallofamerica.com up and running. Any donation you can make would be hugely, hugely appreciated. Next week, it is the Banal of America Audio Season 2 Season Finale. Yes, my friends, we have reached the end of the line. We have gone all out here for the Season Finale of BOA Audio Season 2. It is a landmark episode with a true icon in the world of esoterica, the venerable Brad Steiger. He's been studying the esoteric for over 50 years. He's either authored or co-authored over 160 books. He is, without a doubt, a hands-down, first-ballot Hall of Famer in the world of esoterica, and I am just thrilled to bring him on the program. Brad Steiger on the season finale of Banal of America Audio, season 2, talking about 50 years of esoterica. This is an amazing interview, my friends. We're going to be talking about what it was like for Brad to break into esoteric studies in the 1950s at the young age of 20 years old. We're going to talk about the lessons he's learned from all these years studying the paranormal, the evolution of his journey as a researcher, the explosion of esoterica from niche market to veritable cottage industry, his thoughts on the lack of cohesion in esoterica, the role of the media in covering the unknown, the hopefulness of the 1960s, the problem with today's newcomers to esoterica, and tons and tons more. It is truly the culmination of many of the big picture themes from season two posed to the one and only Brad Steiger. We're really hoping to have two musical previews for this big season finale, so you got to stay tuned to BOA for those over the next week. This is one of the very best interviews we've ever had on the program, and I'm just psyched about it, and I cannot wait for the BOA Audio listeners to hear it. That's next week, of course, the season finale of BOA Audio Season 2. It all comes down to this. Brad Steiger, 50 years of esoterica, next week at BOA. And on that climactic note, we're going to sign off for the week. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. This is Tim Benall, signing off.